Good morning, church. Good to be together, huh? Boy, that first song that Brandon sings, that you, there's no way you can sing that song without your foot doing something <laughs> or going like this. Everybody's moving around. It was great. And the second song just so perfectly sets up our hearts for what we're about to share together now as we enjoy God's Word. Would you agree? We're, we're studying the names of God. And, and to sing that song, I love that song. I'm so glad Brandon found that for us. Well, let's enjoy God's Word as part of our worship and part of our run-up to the Lord's table this morning. I invite you to take your Bible and open it to the place where Robin read for us a few moments ago. That would be the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 22. If you need a Bible this morning, you can just raise your hand. We keep some in the back just for that reason, and uh, we'd love to share one with you so you'd have a copy of God's Word as well. And there is a note page in your bulletin. It looks like this, so... Uh, you want to grab that. It's a little different looking than normal, but we'll give you a reason for why that's true in, in, a, in a moment. Well, on this uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving, and as we continue to uh, study, study God's uh, names as they are found on the pages of Scripture, names that reveal his nature and his character, his activity in our lives in such wonderful, rich ways, we come to a name today that is perfectly suited to be unveiled on this day, and it is the name Yahweh Jireh, as you see it there on your note page. The Lord who alone provides. That's what this name of God means, the, the Lord who alone provides. And we're going to open that name up this morning and enjoy it together. Most of you know this name, yes? You would be familiar with this particular name, say yes. I, I, I kind of have a, okay, you are familiar with it. Someone asked me this week uh, what name was on deck for us today, and I said, well, it's, it's Yahweh Jireh. And they said, oh, good, that's my favorite of all of God's names. So I know at least one person is really dialing in here, and I know that we're going to have a great time. My guess, though, is that many of you might prefer if we said Jehovah Jireh right, instead of Yahweh Jireh. You know, I, I understand that, and you would probably prefer that if you're a little bit older. You're kind of in my generation a little bit. Jehovah Jireh, admittedly, it rolls off the tongue better than, than maybe Yahweh Jireh. Uh, but uh, we are learning Yahweh Jireh because that, that would be more true to the Old Testament name. The name Jehovah is a is a, a more modern uh, Germanic transliteration of the word Yahweh. And so if we're going to study these names, we might as well work hard at pronouncing them right, right? You would agree with that? Okay, so there, there we have it. But if you really need to say Jehovah Jireh, you go for it, all right? You have our blessing. The Lord who alone provides. It is really a great name for us to share on this Sunday before Thanksgiving but maybe not for the reason that you might think. Thanksgiving. It's a holiday in which we remember God's provision, his blessing, his bounty. It's a national holiday for us that, that has roots that go back several hundred years to, to the early days of our uh, American history in which our founders paused to thank God for his supply, for his protection for his benevolent kindness to thank him for his provision and so we might think what a perfect name on this day before thanksgiving week to, to share yahweh jireh the lord who alone provides but but brothers and sisters i would have you know at the very outset here this morning that when god gave this beautiful name to us he gave it with, with only one thought in mind. And that one thought was the person of Jesus. He was not thinking about himself as uh, the provider of all of these many, many blessings that we are going to celebrate and remember and thank him for in this coming week. Food and shelter and clothing and family and, and friends and societal blessings and government freedoms and and all of these things that we tend to remember at Thanksgiving and we say, thank you, God, for all of that. All of this is true in the sense that, that God is the provider of all of those things too, right? I mean, he is that. He is, he is 
the provider par excellence, and, and he deserves to be thanked, not just one day a year either, but every day, right? Multiple times in the day. But that is not what this name is about. It is about one thing. It's about one person. It's about Jesus, God's only Son and our only Savior. The Lord who alone provides my substitute is what this name is all about. I suspect that we're going to maybe tamper a little bit with some of you in the room who are familiar with this name and have, and have often associated with all of these material, physical, uh, wonderful blessings that God gives. And you think of those and you think of, of Yahweh Jireh. But um, I'm hoping that today, even if we might tamper with some of those thoughts, I'm hoping that you will, with me, discover this name in such a way that we will never, ever again, brothers and sisters, confine this name merely to the realm of material, earthbound provision by God. Because it is way, way bigger than that. So, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, and Yahweh Jireh, we come to you this morning asking you to help us learn this name better, to really take it in for what it really means to you and, and honor you in that way. And we all say together, amen and amen. You know, I still find myself shaking my head in wonder when I read Genesis 22 and the, the story of Abraham and his near sacrifice of his beloved son Isaac. And this moment, by the way, takes place 21 centuries, 2,000 100 years before Jesus comes into the world. Just to give you a little bit of time frame there. For me, Genesis 22 stands as one of the, the great moments in all of Scripture. God tests a man's faith in an unbelievable way. He asks a loving father to offer up his son as a sacrifice in an act of obedient devotion and the only thing that prevents this from actually happening is a cry from heaven at the last possible second. It's an incredible story. It is without question one of the greatest, if not the greatest, demonstrations on the human earthly level of what faith looks like. It's faith in the extreme. And for that reason alone, this chapter would be of value to us if all we did was try to take a few faith lessons from it. But Genesis 22, 1-14 is much more than a story about a man's faith. It is a, it is a story about holy hints. It is, a, it is a story that is a prelude. It is a story that is a foreshadowing of how far God will go to love and save you and how far he will go to love and save me. That's what this story is really about. Holy hints that point us to God the Father and to God the Son. Through Abraham and Isaac and their trek to a place of sacrifice, we will be permitted to see into Yahweh's own heart this morning and into the heart of Jesus as they will one day, 21 centuries after this moment, trek to the place of sacrifice. I do not believe that we can spend time here and not more fully and more deeply appreciate the emotion, the anguish, the tenderness, the tears, the, the, the love of, of God the Father for His Son Jesus and Jesus' love and trust of His Heavenly Father, Yahweh. We are going to be changed by this morning and by this name. Now our... Our brother Robin read the first 14 verses for us of this chapter a few moments ago, and, and I did not give him the freedom to be able to do this, but ideally he would have had a chance to give us just a little bit of a background, a little bit of context as we drop into this moment. So since I didn't let him do that, let me do that quickly for us, because this story just doesn't hang in space. It has a context. Abraham's life is an extraordinary life. If we back up just a few chapters to Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, if you know the story, out of a distant country and, and promises to make him the founder and the father of a brand new nation, a great nation. And, of course, the nation that God has in view is the Hebrew nation, the, 
the Jewish people. And God's going to bring this nation into being through Abraham. And, and God promised Abraham that not only would he be the father of this nation, but also then through this nation, God would bring one into the world who would ultimately bless the whole world. And, of course, who is that? That's the person of Jesus, you bet. Not bad promises to get one day, right? That's a pretty cool day. Only there's a problem. Abraham is 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90 years old. She has been unable to have children her entire life. But God says, from you, Abraham and Sarah, I am going to make a new nation. It looks doubtful, doesn't it? But that's not going to stop God. In chapter 17 and chapter 18 of this book, God comes to Sarah, and Abraham announces that the son is going to arrive through them within the year. Despite their age, despite Sarah's barrenness, God says, I'm going to make it happen. And the two of them, Abraham and Sarah, they, they laugh at the impossibility of this. They literally laugh. But you and I remember the name that we started this series with, the name Elohim, right? And that's God's name, which means he is the God of the impossible. He's the God who does impossible things. And so what happens? Well, they have a son, and God commands them to name him Isaac. He will be the seed through which the nation will come. And God says, when, you, when this little boy is born and you name him Isaac, uh, you will remember this moment because his name means he laughs. So every time they say their little boy's name, they remember, oh, we forgot about how God does impossible things. <laughs> Elohim. So now there is a son, and not only a son, he's the seed of a whole new nation. And to say that Isaac was Abraham's pride and joy would be a colossal understatement. Isaac truly was this father's deepest delight and the embodiment of all that was good in his life. No father ever loved a son more than, than this father loved his boy. And we don't know Isaac's exact age as we open to chapter 22, but scholars kind of have done the work for us, and they surmise that he's probably somewhere between 15 and 18 years old. So he's, he's not a little boy like you sometimes see portrayed in in artwork, he's a strapping teenager like some of our young guys in this church. He's just like that, taller than me. And all is right and all is good in Abraham's world. He's fulfilled and blessed, and at the center of it all is this son, Isaac. All of that brings us to the front steps of Genesis 22 and another of God's wonderful names, Yahweh Jireh. You have that little note page handy with you? What we're going to be doing here, and the reason we kind of changed the layout this morning, we just couldn't put it on that tiny little insert that we normally use. But, but what you want to notice is that on the left-hand side of this insert is the entire passage out of Genesis 22, uh, 1 to 14. Um, that's the holy hints. There's going to be a lot of hints that are going to point us forward to God the Father and Jesus the Son. So the holy hints are on the left-hand side. The holy reality is going to be on the right-hand side in the form of many New Testament passages that we're going to share together. It all begins with the opening words of verse 1, which read like this. After these things, God tested Abraham. God is going to test the depths of Abraham's faith. What I would call to your attention in this moment is that, that it doesn't say that God tempted Abraham. Is that important? Well, you better believe that's important. <laughs> Tempting is what Satan does, right? It's what he does in your life. It's what he does in my life. He tempts us to destroy our faith. He tempts us to take us away from God and to bring ruin into our lives. That's what temptation is all about. But God never tempts us. James 1.13 says God never tempts anyone, but he does test, doesn't he? He does do that. And always for the purpose, not of destroying our faith, but of refining our faith and perfecting our faith in him as his people. Abraham, God says, verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love. We'll stop right there. I don't want us to miss this. Take the son you love, the only son of the covenant promise that I made with you, that son, Isaac, your son, the one you love. I think God's trying to make a point, don't you? God is making a big deal about it, this, the, the deep, deep love relationship that exists between Isaac and Abraham. Take this son, Abraham, the object of your great, great love. And I believe God starts here, emphasizing the loving father-son bond between Abraham and Isaac because he's actually hinting at his own love relationship with his son, Jesus. He's actually making a statement about the depth of his own love for his son, which is infinitely greater, of course, than, than any love that we could generate or that even Abraham possesses here. On your note page, the holy hint in Genesis 22 is on the left, and then on the holy reality being pointed to there on the right, because twice God in the New Testament speaks from heaven and declares in a thunderous voice his love for his son. Once at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, and then a second time in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. But on your note page, as Jesus is being baptized, this voice from heaven booms out and it says, This is my what? My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. With Him and in Him I find great delight. He is my Son. Abraham, you love your son, but I far more love my son. It's the first of many holy hints. So you're going to kind of get a feel for now how this is going to work. For what do we read next? Well, God says in verse 2, Take your son and go to the land of what? Moriah. You suppose this is just a random location that God pulled out of the hat? Go to Moriah. No, of course not. Our God doesn't do random, does he? I don't think so. Our God is a God of order. It's a hint. It's a hint. We know exactly where the region of Moriah is. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 is going to tell us that. How does that verse read? Well, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on what? On Mount Moriah. God wants Abraham and Isaac to go to the very place, the very hills where in the future Jerusalem will be built and God's temple is going to be constructed. In Abraham's day, it's uninhabited hill country. It's out in the middle of nowhere, but that's going to change eventually. And just as it will be no accident then that Jesus, in those final days before the cross, will turn his face towards, say it, towards Moriah, towards Jerusalem, and make his way to the cross, his appointment with our redemption. God says, Abraham, take your son Isaac to Moriah. But it's a holy hint. It's pointing to God the Father and Jesus' eventual journey to that place. Take him there and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me, God says next. Slay him by your hand, and offer his body to me, up to me, in the fire. Now, that sounds absolutely horrible, does it not? That just sounds unbelievable, very not godlike, to say the least. But remember, this is a test, right? It's a test. We know because we have the whole Bible that that God he hates human sacrifice. He he, he literally hates it. In his eyes, it is, the, it is a great, great sin. And, we have, and, and, and he'll reveal that later. But in this moment, Abraham doesn't know that about God. And we know that God won't let Abraham kill Isaac because we have the whole story. But, but Abraham doesn't know that either. This is a test. Can any of us even begin to fathom what goes on inside of this dad's heart? When he hears these words, you talk about having your world rocked, having it turned upside down. Man, oh man. But, but, but God is revealing something about himself here. 
God is calling Abraham in this moment, I believe, to, to utterly, completely, totally surrender Isaac. Give him up. Abraham, you, you don't just take your son's life, but you reduce his body to ashes so that there is nothing left of him for you to hold on to. It's a call to completely let go of his son. The request seems devastatingly extreme, but again, it is a hint. It's God's way of revealing what our salvation required him to do with Jesus. Totally, completely, utterly surrendering his son up to death on a cross for you and me, holding nothing of him back for himself. It's a picture of an all-encompassing release. The Holy Spirit seeks to convey that to us, I believe, when through Paul's pen we read these words there on your note page from Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Is that not a hint? from the Old Testament to this moment in the New. For God at the cross of Jesus, there was no thought of holding back His Son from enduring the full force of of sin's price. He did not spare Jesus. He would not spare Jesus. He, He gives Him up for us. He won't let Abraham experience that, but He most certainly will experience it Himself. It's a holy hint. The hints continue. Sacrifice Isaac there as a burnt offering, says verse 2, on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now among the the hills in the region of Moriah, apparently there is one in particular, one hilltop that, that God has in mind as the place where this horrific act of surrender is going to take place, both for Abraham and Isaac, but also for himself and his son Jesus. Here in Genesis 22, the hill's not named, known only to God the Father. However, 21 centuries after this, we will learn the location of this hill, for this holy hint is revealed in the gospel record on your note page. As the details of Jesus' crucifixion are shared with us, we're told in Matthew 27, 33, they came to a place called what? Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is the place where Jesus will die for us on a little hill in the land of Moriah called Golgotha. Abraham and Isaac are about to make their way to a hill that has a rock formation that resembles a skull. And there on that hill, the sacrifice is to be made. God will offer up his son on this same hill. I call that attention to detail. And I don't know about you, but that kind of precision in Scripture what you have going on in Genesis 22 and what you read in the gospel record concerning the the, the crucifixion of Jesus, when I read that kind of precision, that just gives me so much confidence in God's word. It's all one, isn't it? Because it has one writer, the Holy Spirit. Holy hints continue. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Brothers and sisters, why are we given all of that detail? I mean, why don't we simply read in verse 3, he got ready to go and he left. I mean, wouldn't that be easier? Sure it would. We would think nothing was out of place if that's how it read. He got ready to go and he left. But that isn't what it says. We get these details revealing the planning, the forethought, the care, the participants, the deliberate actions of Abraham as he prepares to obey God's request. Why so much detail? Well, brothers and sisters, it's because it's a holy hint. This moment is hinting at the fact that this journey with his son that God will make to Golgotha, to Moriah, to that hill, was not accidental. It was planned. It was deliberate. It was made with forethought from before the foundations of the world were even laid. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. 
Peter preaches his famous sermon on the day that the church is born. And, and as he speaks about Jesus' crucifixion, he makes this statement there on your note page, on the screen as well. This Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed. What is it saying? What is Peter saying? He is saying that the, that, that, that the death of Jesus was no accident. The hatred and the scheming of the religious leaders during the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, the betrayal of Judas, the arrest of the soldiers in the garden, the mock trial before Pilate and Herod, the agonizing walk carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem, being crucified between two thieves, all of it was from start to finish all of it was with purpose God ordered Jesus' journey to Calvary down to the last detail nothing is an accident Abraham was deliberate brothers and sisters because God would be deliberate holy hints so Abraham sets out for Moriah and then verse 4 says on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar the third day. Three days this dad journeyed with his son under his arm. Three days, not two, not five, three days. Just a random number that God pulled out of the air? No, I'd call it a holy hint. What's it hinting at? It's hinting at the resurrection. What we have here is nothing short of a divine hint pointing us to the resurrection. Think about this for a moment with me. For Abraham, from the moment he heard God's instructions, Isaac was in a sense dead. From the moment that God gave the instruction, Isaac was dead. As Abraham moved closer and closer to that one specific hill, Isaac under his arm, it would have been in his mind as though he were walking with a son who was already dead. Abraham knew it was coming, death and fire. This father's living with that thought every moment of every step that he takes for three days, seeing Isaac as if already offered up. However, at the end of the three agonizing days, God replaces the sentence of death with a reprieve and with life. He gets Isaac back. And so in a sense, resurrection. Yes? Surely a holy hint. On your note page there, it's almost as if Jesus was thinking of Genesis 22 when he makes a statement to some religious leaders. It goes like this, Luke 13, verse 32. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. What is Jesus talking about? talking about his resurrection a journey of three days and and for jesus not until the resurrection will salvation's work be truly done only then on the third day jesus says will i reach my goal when i've risen from the dead was that a coincidence or a holy hint that was a holy hint coming out of genesis 22 the hints just keep coming verse 5 after three days abraham and isaac and the two servants reached the hills of moriah Abraham says to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. In other words, what's about to take place? Well, it's between a father and a son alone. Between Abraham and Isaac alone. It's something that only the two of them can fully enter into, fully share in. And so God is telling us, through Abraham's actions, something about himself. How he sees Calvary and the crucifixion of his own son 21 centuries from now. It's really between me and my son, God is saying. God says his obedience to my holy request to die for sinners, pay their sin debt, die their death because I love them, and my holiness demands it, that's between us. No one else can share in that. 
It will be. It has to be a holy transaction between God the Father and God the Son. And just as Abraham's servants would not understand, so too much of our world does not understand the cross of Jesus, right? To much of our world, the cross is ludicrous, it's pointless, it's ridiculous, it's unnecessary, it's, it's heartless, it's a cruel story. They don't understand this holy thing any more than Abraham's servants would have understood that moment had they been there. And so they're not there. This is something that is done alone. A holy hint. And then if you flip your note page over, in the second half of verse 5, Abraham adds this. I and the boy will go over there and worship and then get this and come back again to you. If that line is not underlined in your Bible, circled or highlighted, it needs to be because it is, a, it is really a hinge pin here for us. In other words, Abraham is saying, we will come back to you. He doesn't say I. He says we. In fact, the NIV version, if you have that version open, that's exactly how the translators render this part of the verse. We will come back to you because they understand what's being said. When we ask, how in the world can Abraham come to the place in his faith that he is able to obey God here, even to the point of killing his own beloved son Isaac, the son through whom all the promises of God are are to be fulfilled, how is he able to do that? The answer is right here in verse 5. And the words we will come back to you. Brothers and sisters, Abraham fully believed, listen carefully now, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. We will come back to you. In other words, Abraham concludes that he would go to Moriah, he will carry out the command, and God, because he is God and always keeps his promise, he will have to raise Isaac from the dead. He will have to do that. Maybe even taking the ashes of Isaac and restoring Isaac's body if necessary. Abraham believed this with all of his heart. It was the only way in his mind that the request of God could be be obeyed. God, you're going to raise him back to life. We will worship and then we will come back to you. There has to be a resurrection. Someone says, oh, come on now, Tim. That seems like a bit of a stretch. You're reading something into the text in 22 that is not there. And I would quickly agree, were it not for the fact that we have the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer is talking about examples of great faithfulness that are found in the Old Testament. And we would not be surprised that Abraham's name comes up Look how the Holy Spirit speaks of Abraham. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. It's there on the right side of your note page, near the top. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to, say it, raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Resurrection truth is how the father heart of Abraham could go to that hill and offer his son. But here's the kicker. It is no different with God the Father and his son. He knew that Jesus would die for our sin and that his death would take him to the grave, and he would be in that grave for three days, but God also knew that his son would rise from the dead. We will come back to you. It wasn't just Abraham's conviction. I would submit to you that it was our Heavenly Father's conviction. What a holy hint. 21 centuries before the moment of resurrection. In verse, 20, verse 6, more, more hints. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and placed it on Isaac, his son. Do you see a holy hint there? (laughs) The cross. Somebody's getting it here. 
Isaac will carry the wood on his back to the place of sacrifice where he will then be laid upon it and his life will be taken. And just like Isaac, so too Jesus will do what? Carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. John 19, 17 reminds us, Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Is that a coincidence? Genesis 22 and Jesus bearing his cross? I don't think so. And as Isaac carried the wood on his back, the rest of verse 6 says that Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife. Again, holy hints, I would submit to you. Abraham brings fire. He brings burning coals in a clay jar, probably, to this place of sacrifice. And and it's interesting because fire in the Bible is often the tool that God chooses to use to convey his righteous judgment against sin. We see this, for example, in the flaming sword that the angel has at the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve rebel. We see uh, fire and brimstone that God rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah for their incredible wickedness. We, we, we see in Scripture that hell is called the lake of what? Fire, absolutely. It is the way that God expresses his righteous judgment against sin. As Abraham will bring the fire, God will bring the full wrath of his holiness to bear upon Jesus. That's a holy hint. And the knife? Well, it's going to be the instrument of death that Abraham intends to use on Isaac, but he'll be prevented from doing that. Perhaps it is a holy hint, though, of, of the spear that was plunged into Jesus' side by a Roman soldier at the cross. The final insurance, if you will, by the Roman government that Jesus was, in fact, dead. The knife will not be held back. To the hilltop called Golgotha, God brought fire and the knife. Holy hints. So now, picture the scene once more with Abraham and Isaac. It's just the two of them. They're climbing up toward what the father knows is the boy's death. And this father places on the back of his son the wood upon which he will soon be laid. Isaac doesn't know what is unfolding, but his dad sure does. And so let me ask you, dads, let me ask you, moms, were this you, you are Abraham, how would you be feeling as you laid that bundle of sticks on your son's back? No doubt the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. The bundle of sticks would feel like a a, a 10-ton weight as you took it from the donkey's back and you put it on the back of your, your child. But you do it without a word and with your eyes brimming with tears, you do it. And so too does our Heavenly Father do it to Jesus. You begin the final steps to the top of the chosen hill and and you're lost in your thoughts. And and then suddenly the silence is broken. Your boy asks, oblivious to what is about to happen, he asks, Dad, Dad, But he has to say it again and he has to say it louder because you're consumed with your anguish and the thoughts. Dad! Dad! Yes, what is it? Well, Dad, you have the fire and you have the wood and and the knife is in your belt. But, But where's the sacrifice? Where is the lamb? We need a lamb, right? The most important thing is missing, he says to you. Only you think to yourself, no, the sacrifice is not missing. It's here. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. How difficult that walk must have been for Abraham. How infinitely more difficult for our Heavenly Father. 
Isaac's question, where is the lamb, will be answered by John the Baptist 21 centuries after this moment when Jesus comes to be baptized in the Jordan River. Do you remember this moment? Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John sees him from a distance, and he says, Behold, what? The lamb of God. He could have chose a hundred different expressions, and what does he say? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? And John says, here, Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb that God required. And what a great reminder for us when Abraham says in verse 8 that God will provide the Lamb. What a holy hint that is. Abraham speaks a deep truth about our salvation, brothers and sisters, And it's a truth that he doesn't even realize in this moment. In the work of salvation, sinners like ourselves bring nothing to the hill of Calvary. Are you agreeing with me on that? We bring absolutely nothing to the hill of Calvary except our sin. We contribute nothing. We add nothing. We don't bring our good works. We don't bring our kind deeds. We don't bring our charitable efforts. We bring nothing to the cross of Jesus. Nothing but our sin. God brings the lamb. God does that. God gives the lamb. God kills the lamb in the person of his son. Is that not what John 3.16 says? Which we all know, we've all memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He provides the lamb. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Amen and amen. In verse 9, father and son reach the place of sacrifice. The long and anguished journey is nearing its end. And and not surprisingly, another holy hint shows up for us. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Jesus will likewise be laid upon the wood of the cross and not simply bound, brothers and sisters, but what? Nailed to the cross. Acts 2.23. But I would especially have you see in verse 9 this. Isaac's submission in this moment. Remember, he's, he's probably in his late teens and he certainly isn't stupid. He's putting it all together now as his father binds his hands and his feet. <laughs> I'm the sacrifice. It's me. He's surely physically far superior to his father who's approaching 120 years of age. Nevertheless, Isaac offers no protest, no resistance as his dad ties him up and lays him on this pile of wood. Do you not find that remarkable? What it says about Isaac is that he had such trust and and confidence in his father and his father's love for him that he knew that his dad would never, ever do anything that would ultimately come to harm for him. And he willingly submits to his father at every turn. Even up to the moment that that knife is raised above him, Isaac is trusting his dad. Not one word of resistance. What a holy hint that is of Jesus. Like Isaac, Jesus knows full well that he is the sacrifice. And he knows that none are going to come to take his place. He is the lamb. And like Isaac, his trust in his heavenly father is such that there is no resistance, only submission. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before Jesus is crucified, do you remember Jesus' prayer? Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Abba, Aramaic for daddy. Daddy? Abba, father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus says, in effect, Father, I trust you all the way to the cross, the grave, and beyond. Absolute trust, absolute submission, rooted in an infinitely great love between a father and his son. And it's in this atmosphere of complete trust with Isaac looking up into his father's eyes, which were no doubt brimming with tears, 
that we read in verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Fellow Christian, this is how far it goes. This test of Abraham's faith. To the the point of that knife glimmering in the sun, poised over Isaac's submitted body, the father and the son locked in love upon one another. You know, it's been said that our God is an 11th hour God. He saves in the 11th hour. I would suggest that he, he, he saves five minutes to midnight. Five seconds to midnight. Abraham's faith is pressed to the point of no return. Knife poised above him. And it's at this moment when a second's delay will mean death that Abraham and Isaac are engulfed in a thunderous cry from heaven in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What do you suppose the world record is for hearing a command of God and obeying it? (laughs) What do you suppose the Guinness record is for the fastest knife drop ever? Abraham holds both of those records. And although the details given are not extensive, you get the impression that with his hand still poised over Isaac, Abraham looks up, verse 13, and there in the thicket he sees a ram caught by its horns. And and at that moment, Abraham must have just torn those leather cords from, from Isaac's feet and hands and And pulling him from that wood pile, he throws his arms around him in a long, strong embrace with tears, no doubt. He's crying out to God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the substitute. You provided a substitute. And Abraham went and took the ram, says verse 13, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son in the place of his son so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide Yahweh Jireh and it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided holy hints have in effect driven every part of this story, every verse in this story. Everything has a parallel. Abraham and Isaac, his only son, God the Father, his only son, the mountains of Moriah, the city of Jerusalem, the unnamed mountaintop, the hill called Golgotha, the purposeful planning, a three-day journey pointing to a three-day resurrection, a bundle of wood on a little boy's back, a bundle, a cross of wood on Jesus' back. The fire and the knife, divine judgment in a Roman spear, an absent lamb and the lamb of God, the submissive son Isaac and Jesus in his prayer, not my will but yours be done. Everything at every turn has a match, a holy hint and a holy reality. But here's where the parallel stops. For when Abraham raised the knife above his son, Heaven yelled, stop, do not do it, Abraham. Hold back your hand. But when God's holy hand of judgment against his son, who had become sin for us, is raised over his son, nobody yells, stop. No one cried out, don't lay your hand on your son, Yahweh. Do not do this thing. God did not look up as it were, and find a substitute that could take the place of his son. No, on Calvary's barren hill that day, the cry was not stop. The cry was crucify him. Crucify him. And God, going to a link that Abraham could not be asked to go, plunges the knife into the heart of his son, into his Isaac. From the cross, from the the deepest depths of Jesus being, there comes this, this anguished cry 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Scripture says that darkness washed over the land and and Jesus was abandoned by heaven and by earth, by the Father, left utterly alone, His Father having turned away from Him because He had become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might have His righteousness. Holy God, Jesus' Father could could not look upon His Son who had become our sin. The death blow is delivered. The sin is paid for. The life of the innocent Son is given up. Why did God do this? Why? Why does God do to Jesus what He would not ask Abraham to do to us. There's only one motive great enough to bring God to such a place. The scriptures give us the answer. Romans 5 verse 8. Can we read it aloud together? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why does God do this to Jesus? Because he loves us. Abraham in verse 14 gives this hilltop in the land of Moriah a name. So Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I said at the outset that we were going to tamper with the name if all you have understood it to mean is the God who provides your material blessing for you. I told you we'd mess with that. And my prayer was and my hope was that you would learn about this name and you would never, ever, ever use Yahweh Jireh for simply an earthbound reference to your blessings. Though they are great and they are from God, They are not a part of this name. It is Jesus. It is Jesus alone. The Lord who alone provides my substitute. Yahweh. Jireh. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we are about to step into this communion moment. Our hearts have been prepared. We are ready. Yahweh Jireh, you have provided. And we have opportunity now to remember in very tangible ways through the bread and through the cup what you did on that hill outside of Jerusalem in the land of Moriah when you gave us Jesus. May what we share in these moments now bring great delight to your heart. We love you, but only because you loved us first. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.